Good morning. Good to see all you guys. And good morning to everybody that is joining us online on our live stream. And I'm sure we have some people in the tent today. What a great day to be in the tent. It's beautiful outside. Um, well, welcome. Uh, that was just so helpful for me for us to sing what we sang and uh, for us to be reminded of the birth of the church and the uh, movement of the Holy Spirit to inaugurate that. And, um, you know, we're in Thessalonians, early church history, right? One of the first letters that Paul wrote, uh, and he was writing about a church that was unstoppable. That's the title of our series. But the reason it's unstoppable is because of the presence and the activity of the Holy Spirit in the context of God's redemptive plan. So uh, this is, this is going to be so encouraging to us, I think. Kevin's question was great. Like, What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be present and active in our lives, like very concretely, very tangibly. What does that mean? How would I know it if I saw it? What would it look like? And we're going to get some great ideas today as we look at what it looked like in the early church, particularly the one in Thessalonica. Well, before we get into the text, I want to uh, remind us of a question that we asked last week. And uh, man, it's, it's been kind of in my craw and uh, maybe yours as well, just kind of stirring around in there, helping me uh, think carefully about what the Christian life really looks like. Um, as we remember, Paul was writing to a church that had heard the good news about a Savior that had come, but had also been told about a Savior that would return. And so they're living in the in-between, and they're faced with a question like, what does life look like until he comes back? So I asked you guys the question last week, how would your life look if you knew with absolute certainty that Jesus was coming back in July? And then the follow-up question to that was, would your life, if you knew that, would it look any differently tomorrow than it looked like last week? And if it's different, why? Why would you and I live any differently if Jesus were coming back in July or if Jesus were coming back in 20 years? Why would we live differently if he's coming back? I want to add a new question to those this week, and that is, which of those two versions of your life would you value more at the end of your life? See, I want to get to the end of my life, and I want to have as few regrets as I could possibly have. And I think if I'm living without the return of Christ in mind, I'm probably going to live with a lot more regrets. But if that is front and center, if that's in the front of my mind every single day, I think I live differently. And I think I live in such a way that however long my life is, I'll look back and I'll just be full of gratitude. I, I won't be patting myself on the back. I'll be thanking the Lord that he led me in the way that he did. Very visible uh, in terms of Christ's return. 
our, our way of life reveals what we believe to be our purpose in life. So how you and I navigate our days really matters. Um, I mentioned that Paul had three purposes for this letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. I want to review those again real quickly. First of all, he wrote to affirm the genuine faith that was evident in that early church. He saw it, it was visible, it was tangible, and he wants to affirm them for that, encourage them for that. Secondly, he wants to urge the Thessalonian Christians to continue growing spiritually. This is a wonderful church. But he doesn't say, hey, you guys have grown enough, you've matured enough, you've, you've made enough progress, I just kind of coast on from here. He's calling them to more, and he will do so as long as he has breath. Then lastly, he writes to clarify the truth and significance of the inevitable return of Christ. He wants them to have that in the front of their minds. He's going to mention it in every chapter of this letter. So it's a very important theme for him. Last week, we began making our way into chapter 1, and if you look at the entirety of it, it's really all a statement of thanksgiving. It is a bit of an introduction for the letter, but he is uh, thanking God, as he says in verse 2, for what he has seen and what he's hearing about in this Thessalonian church. So uh, pick up again there in verse 2, Thessalonians 1, 2. He says, we give thanks to God... Uh, and he's speaking of he, Silas, and Timothy. Those are the three that are attached to this letter. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying we thank God Generally, he mentions that he's remembering some things about them, again, that he experienced himself and that Timothy brought word of when he returned from seeing them, their work that was produced by faith. So it is interesting to remember that there is work associated with living the Christian life, not to gain God's approval or forgiveness or any of that. It's all in response, a response of gratitude for what he's already done. But there is a work of faith. Paul is also thankful for their labor motivated by love. We talked about that being a painful thing. There's a cost for following Christ. And Paul sees them walking in that way, and he's grateful for that. And then lastly, he is thankful for their endurance inspired by hope. They are looking beyond their immediate circumstances, and they are enduring great difficulty to follow Christ. All of that, he says, was grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were so identified with him that they were able to live their lives in that way. If you missed last week, I want to encourage you, the, the message is on our website. You can see that there, and our notes are as well. But looking forward, Paul goes from thanking God generally for some things to thanking him specifically for what he has come to know about them. Pick up in verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, and you can put sisters in there, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, 
that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul is going to mention three things that he has observed in the Thessalonian church He is thanking God for that. So there's this vertical conversation going on, but he's allowing this church to sort of listen in to what he's talking to God about. And he's going to mention three things that he is specifically grateful for as he thinks about this church in Thessalonica. And the first one is that they belong to God's family. Paul is grateful to God that they belong to to God's family. You can think of the phrase loved and chosen by God. That's what he mentions there. Brothers loved by God, he has chosen you. Uh, Just write down Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. There's a fuller kind of expression of what he's talking about here. Paul writes to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's another word for chosen. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So there's this idea that their relationship with God is in response to God's initiative of love and choosing. Now, the meaning of both of these passages in 1 Thessalonians and also in Ephesians has been debated for centuries. Sometimes it gets pretty nasty. And the reason for this debate is the existence of two seemingly contradictory ideas in Scripture. Those are God's sovereignty on one side and then human freedom or responsibility and or on the other side. So those two things, those two topics are raised And they appear to be contradictory to one another. In other words, how can God be sovereign, which we understand to mean that he absolutely controls everything. How can he be sovereign and then man be free and responsible for his choices? Like that just seems like that doesn't go together. And so we debate it. And often people will pick sides as if we have to. And then here's what happens as well when we get into the scriptures and we come across a passage that doesn't really line up with which side we've chosen, we kind of diminish that one. It's like, well, I'm not sure that's really saying what I think it says. And that goes both ways. That's on both sides. So we, we need to enter into this discussion, I think, in order to avoid the pitfalls that come from division. Because that's, that's what ends up happening here in the church. A guy named Richard Land wrote this about this dilemma. He says, how do we reconcile two great eternal truths, seemingly one in contradiction to the other, proclaimed by the same apostle under the Holy Spirit's inspiration? 
that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's Ephesians 1. And that God has an earnest desire for everyone to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of the truth. That's in 1 Timothy. And that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. So how can that be? How can God choose and yet also want for all people to come to a knowledge of him and to a place of salvation? I would add to that the biblical basis for a person's conversion. If you have come to Christ, it was the result of a choice. Like Nobody in here just accidentally fell into salvation. You were confronted with your sin. You were confronted with the separation that that sin created between you and your creator. You were presented with a gift that God extended to you in the person of his son to stand in your place and be a substitute with his own life, his shed blood, his broken body, so that you could be forgiven. That was offered to you. It was not forced upon you. And then you made a choice. You decided either yes or no. I will either receive that gift or I will reject it. And there are eternal consequences associated with that choice. That's the reality of yours and my conversion. And if we're going to bring these two things that are seemingly contradictory into some kind of alignment, we have to recognize that that choice has to be real. Like, I don't think later we're going to find out, I know you thought you made a choice, but really you didn't. You, you made one. I, it, those two have to go together. So let's just keep moving along here. D.A. Carson says this, does a great job, has two biblical propositions that bring these two things together. First of all, God is absolutely sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Now, D.A. Carson can't explain that, and neither can I. But it has to be true. Otherwise, one of those two things falls off. Secondly, he says, human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices. But human responsibility, this is the other side of the coin. Human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or make God absolutely contingent. So it's not as if God has all these plans, but he's sitting there just kind of hoping that we choose rightly so his plans don't get messed up. Somehow, his plans are going to get to their destination it's unstoppable, as we talked about last week. And somehow our choices are going to play a part in that. Never thwarting what God intends. D.A. Carson goes on to say, Part of our problem is believing that both are true. We tend to use one to diminish the other. We tend to emphasize one at the expense of the other. But responsible reading of Scripture, please hear me 
Responsible reading of Scripture prohibits such reductionism. These two things are held in tension throughout the Scriptures. And so let's not try to resolve the tension by eliminating one or the other. Let's just, let's just hold it in tension and recognize that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And somehow this makes perfect sense to God, even if it doesn't make sense to me or you. Let's leave that tension where it is. Rather than pitting these against one another, um, let's think of them as complementary to one another, and we'll let God work it out. I came across uh, what I think is a, is a good definition of election. I'm giving it to you for consideration. There is no perfect definition out there, but I like the way it sounds, and uh, I think it is an attempt to do what we've just been talking about. Here it is, election. Those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen. Those who freely come to God, that's recognizing their choice and their responsibility, are those whom God has freely chosen, recognizing his sovereignty. Take that for what it's worth. This doctrine has often been used to talk about who's excluded and who's in and all that kind of stuff. If you do look through the New Testament especially and you follow wherever it's mentioned, typically the purpose it's there is to provide comfort and assurance for those who are in the midst of very difficult, painful circumstances. It's when, when people get in that place where life is so hard you kind of wonder, has God left me? Is he for me? Am I really his? Have you ever had any of those questions? The doctrine of election comes in to say, listen, if you have entered into a relationship with God, you can be comforted and assured regardless of your circumstances. You are safe and secure in him. And you can know that because of him choosing. Again, I know these are hard concepts to put together, but... That was meant to be a comfort and assurance. If you've chosen by God, who could ever separate you from his love? I hope that encourages you. I know it encouraged them and they needed it. If we look at Acts 17, we see how this church in Thessalonica was born. I want to, to read a segment to you. We just need to, as best we can, try and go there and think, what, what must this have been like for them. So Paul and Silas and Timothy make their way to Thessalonica. Pick up in verse 1. It says, They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob 
set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason was basically their host in Thessalonica, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So that's the city's response to the good news of a Savior who has come and a Savior who will return. I'm sure they were afraid, perhaps confused, maybe angry. I I don't know all that they experienced, but if somebody kind of grabbed you up and took you down to the courthouse and threw you in front of the authorities there and basically said that you're a traitor, that you deserved great consequences for your rebellion, and all you did was believe in Christ. That was it. How would you feel? What would you think? What would you do? This was a tough start for them, but they followed the course beautifully. Shortly after this, Paul and Timothy and Silas were sent out of town because their lives were in such peril. But this church just marched on. It just kept on progressing. It is amazing. And I think Paul, having had to leave and Wondering what this young church, it, it couldn't have been more than a few months old when he was gone. He, he had to have thought, they need some encouragement. I've got to remind them that they're on the right track. That things are going to be okay, even if circumstances are hard. So he writes to them to recognize the first steps and signs of genuine spiritual life. And he started with... Church of Thessalonica, you belong to God. He loves you, and he's at work there. Secondly, he highlights their response to Revelation. He uh, tells them, I'm paraphrasing, you, it's very obvious to me, you cherish God's word. Not only do you belong to his family, but you cherish his word. Now, his confidence for that has to do with the exchange that actually took place when the gospel was presented to them. That's in verses 4 and 5. And he says in verse 5, if you remember, he uses the word because. So he's saying, I know that you belong to God, that you have been loved by him because of how you responded to the presentation of the gospel and all that took place around it. He says the gospel was communicated And it came to you infused with supernatural power. Now, I don't know if this is exactly how it went down, but what Kevin read earlier from Acts 2, that might have happened. We don't know. But there was something supernatural that took place when the gospel was proclaimed to those Thessalonians. They heard it, and there were signs of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Secondly... He very specifically attributes it to the Holy Spirit. 
It's like this, this wasn't just some crazy coincidence. It wasn't just a weird, wacky day. God in the person of the Holy Spirit showed up and he manifested his power in you and around you in the midst of that moment. He specifically highlights a deep sense of conviction. There's some debate over whether that conviction was on the part of Paul and Silas and Timothy as they proclaimed it or on the part of the people who heard it. It really doesn't matter. There was this very sobering sense of the weight of this news. And I I think everybody who was involved in this proclamation, this conversation, I think they were overwhelmed by their need and God's kindness to meet that need. And so they responded in faith. They trusted in Christ. As a result, they were changed dramatically. It was undeniable. Paul goes on to describe it in verse 6. He says, you... After all that we witnessed there, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, remember the map that I showed you last week. These are massive areas, all currently under Roman rule, and apparently... Not too long after, again, these are just a matter of months, maybe a year, year and a half, their influence is spreading all over those two regions. So much so that Paul's aware of it. He's hearing about it. The question I had as I read that was, what what is his reference to imitation? What exactly were they doing to imitate Paul and Jesus? He says, they were doing that. And that was evidence of the transformation that was taking place. So here's some thoughts. The Thessalonians began imitating Paul and Jesus in the way they received God's word. It it can't really necessarily be the affliction part because Jesus didn't feel affliction until much later, right? Around his crucifixion. So prior to that, it it would have been strange for him to correlate their affliction with Christ's affliction. Now certainly, when we suffer, then we uh, imitate our Savior in an important way. But at this point, he's saying, you imitated Paul and Jesus, and I think it has something to do with receiving God's word. They received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that's important because... Their joy was in the context of affliction. It would have been certainly joyful to get all that great news and all that and life be easy and comfortable and convenient. Like that's what you would expect, but you wouldn't expect them to have joy when life is so hard, when it's so costly for them to receive it. But they did so and they were joyful about it. And that certainly. Um, if you think about the, um, Jesus talked about the word being like food for him. He treasured hearing from his father. Now that's emphasizing the humanity of Christ, but his whole life was ordered around hearing from the father. Paul would say the same thing. They had great joy in that revelation. They were imitating that as they received 
revelation. They cherished it. And their posture toward it was to act upon it, to respond to it, to live according to what they had heard. I want to give you guys a a pattern that perhaps we could follow. Certainly, it's an opportunity for us to do a little bit of self-examination to see, are we following, as they imitated Paul and Jesus, are we imitating them? Here's the pattern, and you can just put this under the umbrella of receiving the word. Like, what does it mean to receive the word? And I've got some uh, statements there that are, it's a process. It starts with proclamation. So first, you have to hear the word. Or perhaps you need to read the word. Okay, so if that doesn't happen, then everything else behind doesn't follow. So somehow it has to come to us, either audibly or as we read it. Then there's illumination. That's the activity of the Holy Spirit. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to guide you and I into all truth. That means that we have an understanding of this that isn't just simple human understanding. There's an understanding that God gives us about its significance and uh, how we might live it out in everyday life. So you've got proclamation and illumination and then rumination. I, I was really bummed this week. So this is a great word, and I've been hearing this most of my Christian life. How many of you have you heard of rumination as it relates to processing the word? Okay, a few of you. That's great. So the, just the good definition is chewing the cud. Okay, that's what cows do, right? But that's a great word for what we do when we have heard and been illumined to God's word. We chew it. We turn it over. We ruminate on it. Now, what I was bummed about is um, in the world of psychology, it's now used as a disorder. So rumination is like thinking the same things over and over and over and over and over again and becoming obsessive about it. Okay. I hate that, though, because it's a great word, so we're going to keep using it. Instead of ruminating on your own thoughts, that is a disorder. Ruminate on, turn over, chew the cud of what God has said. Paul says we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. When you renew your mind, you're not just thinking your thoughts over and over and over again. You're changing from thinking your thoughts to thinking his thoughts. You're absorbing what he says is true about him and about you and about life and about the future. So rumination, you can't get around it. It's absolutely essential if you and I are going to be changed by the word, like the Thessalonians' word. So proclamation, illumination, rumination, then application. This wasn't simple uh, intellectual assent. They didn't hear Paul and just nod and go, yeah, but that sounds really good. That sounds really true. I think I like that. And then they just went right back to life as usual. No, when they heard it, they understood it, Illumined by the Holy Spirit, they began to process it. That led to a place of application. 
I used to do this, now I'm going to do that. And that leads to transformation. It's very simple. Probably most of you are going, duh. And here's the hard question. Are you doing it? Like, I have to ask that too. Just coming to church on a Sunday and listening to a sermon, that gets you to step two. There's a whole lot more to follow. These people cherished God's word, and that is how they cherished it. Not perfectly, but consistently. So Paul is thankful. He's thankful that they belong to God's family. They cherish God's word. And then finally, they embody and amplify the Godward life. I love how he just continues to fill this out in all that it means. Look at verse 8. He says, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves, they is kind of like whoever Paul bumped into, wherever he went, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. It's sort of like Paul keeps bumping into people who are telling him what he experienced in Thessalonica. And I wonder sometimes if he said, hey, I was there. Really, yeah, I was a part of that. Um, He says, uh, our reception among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Just as an aside, I would say, I think that description right there might be a great description of what our life would look like if Jesus were coming back in July. I I think it would look like this, where we would be so engaged with the word and it would have so transformed our life that we would turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven. In fact, that's a, a great description of the Godward life. Um, I want to give you four tangible outcomes because that's where Paul has landed here. He started with um, thanking God for them and for what the word had done in them and now how they're living. So uh, four tangible outcomes mentioned in this text. First of all, ever-expanding redemptive influence. That's in verse 8. Um, One commentator said the figure here is that of an echo that continues indefinitely. Or you could also think of, you know, when you throw a stone in in water, a a pond that is just like glass. And then you see the ripples making their way out. That's the picture he's saying here. I am seeing in you ever-expanding redemptive Influence. It's the echo of gospel transformation. It, like, it never stops with us. It just happens to us and then goes through us to all the people around us. 
when it is genuine. Secondly, uh, Paul says they were turning to God joyfully. Turning to God joyfully. And this is a picture of repentance. Good biblical word that we really ought to know a lot about. And repentance is turning from whatever it is we're doing as, as far as the world is concerned to God. And those two things are always happening simultaneously. Like if you turn to one, you turn away from the other, either direction. So you can't turn to Christ without turning from competing affections. And in this text, it's mentioned as idols. Now, some of us may think, well, idolatry, like wasn't that kind of a primitive thing? I mean, they set up these little stone things or wooden carvings or whatever, and they would bow down and worship them or whatever. Yes, they did. They truly worshipped inanimate objects as if they were God and had power to affect their lives. But you know what? We do the same thing. We just don't have little carved items, you know, wood and stone and all that kind of stuff. It, it sort of looks like money or possessions or pleasure or positions of power. Those are the things that we worship to get two essential things that every one of us needs. Security and significance. We're hardwired for it. We all need it. And we will all find it somewhere. And if that somewhere is anywhere but God, it's an idol. So... Gosh, how do we sort through that, exposing our idols? I think we look at how we spend our time, how we spend our money. Those are two great places to go. How we relate to the people around us. Those are all great indicators of where we're looking for security and significance. And if you see something other than God in any of those places, there's a really good chance that's an idol in your life. And so if we're going to follow the model that we have in this church, and by the way, this is the only church that Paul holds up and specifically says, this is the pattern. Do what these guys are doing. They turned to God from their idols. And I'll go back as well to what Kevin said earlier. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is in you and active? That's what it looks like. It looks like you and I turning away from the world and all that it offers, all of its little trinkets, turning to God for life. Life that only He can give us. So they turned to God joyfully. Next, they served God faithfully. Serving God faithfully. God is the kurios or the Lord, and we are the doulos, the slave. That, that is as true as it could possibly be, whether you and I believe it, like it, or accept it or not. So their posture toward God was to serve Him. 
That just means that they don't come with an agenda. They don't expect him to accept their terms. They just come with empty hands, open schedule. They just go, you're the Lord. Whatever you want, the answer is yes. Even if it's hard, even if it's costly, even if I feel miserable as as I'm doing it, Lord, I'm just going to trust you and serve you. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. It doesn't get any more fundamental than that. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, that is how you do it. How do you worship God? You just offer him yourself and everything about you. That's an outcome of receiving the word. Lastly, they wait for Jesus patiently. I want to read Paul's description of that in Titus. Titus 2, 11 through 14, he says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, turning to God from idols, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. How do you wait well? There it is. It's it's truly, it's not passive. It's not complacent. It's not apathetic. It is engaging yourself wholeheartedly in the purpose and plan of God and just allowing him to use you any way he pleases. That's what it means to wait well. So ever-expanding redemptive influence, turning to God joyfully, serving God faithfully, and waiting for Jesus patiently. As a so what, I want to give you an opportunity to, to maybe apply We think about responding to the word. There's probably some illumination and rumination that's going to need to take place maybe in the weeks to come. But just for today, is there anything that the Holy Spirit has drawn to your attention, highlighted for you and said, you know what? This is something you need to think about. This is something you need to adjust. This is something you need to change in your life. What is that? Be as specific as you can. You can hear from the Holy Spirit. I promise you. Like that's why he was given. He's a helper to to show us how to live. So ask him, how should you respond to his word?
pray. Father, we thank you for this young church that uh, you turned upside down. Thank you for the model that they are to us today. Lord, would you help us as a people to uh, receive the word as they did. And Lord, I know that that happens on an individual level and I know it happens to us on a corporate level as a community of faith. Lord, in both ways, would you change us, transform us, mature us, and use us so that we might be a bright light in this city and beyond to the glory of God and in the name of Christ we pray Amen